Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Let's take a look at the oil as we think about the coronavirus clearly potentially going to have a negative impact on global growth. That is what the market is discounting. When you take a look at oil, you see that as well. WTI and Brent, both down over 20% from their highs, reflecting the concern about global growth. OPEX trying to respond today, announcing that they will they look to reduce output by 1.5 million barrels. To get the latest, we welcome Regina Mayer. She's the global energy head for KPMG based in Houston. Regina, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us your sense of kind of the OPEC move here, that 1.5 million uh, barrel cut to output. Uh, it's noted that Russia may or may, may not be supporting it. So you're right. The market is in free fall around crude price, and it's very substantial. We're seeing significant demand destruction, and current projections are that global demand will at least be flat and potentially negative, and that would be only the fourth time in 40 years that we've seen global demand go negative. So OPEC is trying to take decisive action to stem the tide. If they do the 1.5 million barrels per day, which has not been agreed to by OPEC Plus and Russia being a key constituent there, that would reduce supply by 3.5%, which would be roughly in line with flat demand or even slightly declined demand, which hopefully puts the market more in balance. But right now, the market seems to be shrugging off the decisions that were even made today, and they seem to be unimpressed by the actions that have been taken. Regina, earlier this morning, Jeff Curry of Goldman Sachs came on Bloomberg Surveillance and was talking about how he expects oil prices to fall, and I'm talking Brent, uh, could fall to $40 or even below per barrel this year in terms of the expectations of growth. Do you agree? I do not agree that it will will go that low, but I did not believe that we would be in this territory. So without decisive action tomorrow, it could potentially be 40, I would say for WTI. I I find it hard to see a scenario where Brent dives below 40, but we don't know what's happening with the coronavirus and the market is incredibly jittery and not very rational right now. So, Regina, there was some news out earlier today that Exxon is slowing the pace of its flagship shale project in the Permian Basin. Uh, so, obviously, this raising more concerns at uh, the folks in the Permian uh, having a tough time at these oil levels. What are your clients telling you? Right now, they're saying it's still stay the course, uh, steady as we go. And I think the very large companies have made bold moves to reassure investors. We're putting... We're focusing on the dividend. We're guaranteeing the dividend. We're focusing on value. We're keeping CapEx in line with expectations. They're hopeful that this is a four to six month process and we'll ultimately see ourselves wash out of this. And in the end, we have to make these these big decisions because these are long lead time efforts. If we stay in the Permian, there are players that operate more on the brink and the larger players are hoping, perhaps, that they'll get some of those other players out of the market, which bodes well for future Permian activity. How significant will the bankruptcies in the shell patch be this year? I anticipate that they will go up. We need to see consolidation. There are still too many fringe players and the checkerboard of acreage is still too patchy. Um, The bigger players are consolidating and they can operate more effectively, but there are moves that need to be made. Going down into the 40s, that could drive more of the bankruptcies and I anticipate that that should tick up. So, Regina, overall, let's assume we are facing, you know, lower demand. Um, What else can OPEC do on the supply front? Can they take it another level? And how critical is it having Russia as a part of this? 
it's absolutely critical that Russia is a part of it. Um, that's, I think, what the market is waiting for. And I don't think that they can do a whole lot more, which worries me and where, where probably the Goldman $40 scenario comes into play. Because you can't just keep cutting, cutting. Um, the market's not responding to that. What we really need to see is demand coming back. And some of the indicators that I would look for is a return to shipping. So we have idle manufacturing capacity. We have product that's in containers waiting to be shipped. We have ships that are in quarantine. Once we start to see the supply chains move more effectively and we see travel restrictions lifted and some of the self-quarantine activity uh, run uh, be taken off, then demand comes back, and that, I think, will be the, the thing that buoys the oil price for the longer period. There's a question about the elasticity of the market, just how quickly oil producers can ramp up production if things get back to normal. Is there concern that there could be a whipsaw here with oil prices diving and then jerking way back up as people start to uh, generate some of the same trade and the same travel that they had before and, and without the uh, inventories? Oil production supply chain and production process cannot move as agilely and as quickly as that. So while some may say they're slowing down production, I don't actually see that having a material effect on declining production to have that whipsaw effect. If they could, they probably would, but um, it's not, it's not, they're not able to respond that rapidly. So I don't see that forecast. Regina Mayer, thank you so much for being with us. Regina Mayer, Global Energy Head at KPMG, based in Houston. Let's talk about volatility. I'm looking at the VIX index right here, 36.07. That's up four points today. This thing just recently, a few weeks ago, was down around 12, 13. So incredibly higher risk being priced into the market. And we talk about market volatility. There's absolutely nobody better to do it with than Nick Colas, co-founder of Data Trek Research. He joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Are you how are you thinking about the volatility in this market as whether you should be buying or selling here? Most people, it just scares the heck out of them. Well, it is scary, and that's a very, very logical response, uh, at least an emotional one. If you look at the VIX back to 1990 and look at where it kind of levels out and where it creates a buying opportunity, there's three levels that really matter, 42, 50, and 58, because that's three, four, and five standard deviations from the long-run mean. I hope Tom Keen is listening. <laughs> so those are the levels, and it's worked beautifully so far. On Friday, during that really cataclysmic low around 1 or 2 p.m., it hit 49, right on top of four standard deviations. And so that was so far the bottom. So what we're telling clients is, if you want to trade this 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 tape, look for those levels and don't even try until 42 and be prepared to kind of stick your toe in even deeper at 49.50. It's interesting, for a long time, the low interest rate environment was said to be dampening volatility. Not so this time. No, because the low interest rate environment was coincided with a low volatility of GDP growth, a low volatility of unemployment. Those numbers were getting better or at least flat for a long period of time. And now we have this shock that says we have no idea what happens next. And that implied volatility rises because the volatility of future economic reports are going to be volatile as well. So, Nick, what did you make of the Fed rate cut intra meeting rate cut earlier this week? Panic or wise? You know, it comes down to, I think, you got to read the Beige Book yesterday because the Beige Book had 
50, I want to say 57 mentions of coronavirus or COVID-19, which is higher than the 38 mentions that tariffs got last year when they began to become a real issue. And I think, you know, Chair Powell is a big fan of that beige book. He reads it. And so I think he probably looked at the draft over the weekend and said, this is going to be just as bad or worse as the trade war. And that's what engendered this, uh, this 50 basis point cut. Right now we're seeing Fed funds futures price in another 50 basis point rate cut later this month. What will that do in terms of stock valuations, in terms of volatility? I mean, the, the, it feels like the answer is very, very little. I think it's the case where, you know, the Fed is on the ship and guiding it, and it sees the iceberg ahead, and maybe it's too late to swerve, or maybe it's not, but you got to try. you got to turn the wheel as hard as you can and hope you miss it, or hope it's more of a grazing blow. I think that's the best they can hope for, and I think realistically they know that. So, Nick, you know, one of the things that Lisa and I talk a lot about is, you know, the, the interest rate market in a two-year point, you know, 0.58 on the two-year, the 10-year back below 1%. What does this tell you? I tell you, that question, as our clients have asked that question more often than what does the volatility mean. They view the volatility as sort of a, a function of the virus, and that's probably right. They view the move in the 10 years perhaps warning something more structural, and, and they worry that America has kind of seen its best days, that economic growth is going to be very slow, structural GDP growth will be slower, inflation is going to be non-existent, we're going to end up like Europe and Japan, and, and that is the big worry. My counter argument is that we're not going to end up that way, that we still have you know, a fairly strong economy, a really strong tech sector, and all the things that create long-term economic growth, but it is a huge source of concern, far more than I would have thought. Going right to that point with tech, what are the levels at which you buy? Oh, so the, you know, the way we look at it is tech is the most volatile part of the market. And so you have to basically think about where the market can go and how bad it can get. And there, not to go back to standard deviation math, but a 5% down day is a five standard deviation move. That is the kind of levels where you get real panic. And outside of 08, we've never really seen it for a very long period of time. So the bottom line is if you want to trade tech, you wait for a big, big down day, a down 5% day on the S&P where tech is down 7, 8, 9%. And that's the kind of low that you can safely nibble away at. So if it goes down 9% more from here, Apple, in a, Facebook, in a day, Google, in a day, you're in there buying. Yep. Interesting. So as we think about the market here, I mean, are you thinking about we are in fact in a, you know, you know, not a stagflation, but a, a lower growth for longer? Is that kind of your base case here over the next several years? It is certainly the base case for at least the next year or two. You know, I think there were early on back in January, which feels like a thousand years ago, there was a hope this was going to be a V-bottom kind of event. Uh, we look at uh, Chinese pollution and traffic congestion data to get a sense of how quickly the Chinese economy is coming back online. The good news is morning and evening rush hour in the five biggest cities is now getting back to normal. And in Shenzhen, which is really important for tech, it's back to normal. Pollution is getting back to normal. But weekend traffic still very slow. Midday traffic still very slow. So this isn't going to be a V-bottom. It's going to be a slow grinding improvement higher, not just for the U.S., but everywhere in the world. I was reading a Project Syndicate column by uh, Harvard professor Kenneth Rogoff last night, and he was talking about how this is fundamentally different from other issues that the Fed and central banks globally have dealt with. And when we talk about, you know, the idea of rate repression, we talk about no inflation. This time, he was arguing, could be different because the disruption is on the supply side, not the demand side. When you have a disruption in supplies, 
The demand is still there. That means prices get bid up and we could end up in a 1970s-like situation. Do you give any credence to that idea? He's a super smart guy, so you can't just blow it off. But I'll tell you, I'll give you, you know, two anecdotes. The first is the China traffic one. China consumer is not back. There is no you know, consumer demand in China to speak of for all the obvious reasons. Walking across town from, from the west side of Manhattan this morning, I was able to jaywalk across Park Avenue in the middle of the day because there was no traffic for a block and a half. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> it just says that normal midtown traffic, which is usually quite heavy, is extremely light in New York. And that could be a function of tourism, which is obviously down. It could be a function of work from home. But I can tell you, having lived in New York my whole life, as you have, it looks very light out there. It's not quite back to 08 levels, but it is light. What is your sense of how long it'll take to cycle through the U.S. economy? I mean, because it, it, it's the, the V is probably out of the discussion, as you were suggesting. Yeah, the V feels like it's off the table for now, and it feels like it's three to six months. Three months being kind of dragging your way down towards the bottom of whatever happens, and then three months coming back. And I think there's a piece of this that really revolves around holiday and Christmas as well, both from the supply and the demand side. Because if you do get an economic shock, then you do have a different picture going into holiday and as well as the elections. So unfortunately, this touches on every single topic investors care about. Nick Colas, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Nick Colas is co-founder of Datatrek Research, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. We are looking at markets pulling back a little bit from their earlier losses, still solidly in the red. And the question for a lot of people is not just when do I buy the dip, but when do I even get involved? How do I even understand when to make allocation shifts in response to this news? Barry Ritholtz joins us now. Barry Ritholtz, founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Barry, I know what your advice is. 60-40, keep it in, long term, boom. But I have a question for you based on what is going on currently, right? And that sure. is... How much do we have to bring down our earnings and our dividend expectations for the S&P 500 at this point, given what we're seeing with respect to some of the guidance that we're getting out of airlines, out of entertainment companies, out of gaming companies? Sure. Anything involving travel, tourism, go down the list. The, the more challenging aspect, that's easy. Airlines, cut them to zero. They're, they're going to have, uh, their profits are going to be, for the quarter, are going to really be pressured. The bigger question that I think we have a hard time answering is, what about the global supply chain? Already, there have been rumors of an inability to replace iPhones from Verizon and AT&T because the shipments are down. So the bad news is we don't know how severe this is going to be, and we don't know how long it's going to last. The good news is every time we've seen one of these over the past century— it has its impact. It, it lasts a, a couple of quarters. And then on the other side, things go back to normal. Today, we have a double-edged sword. On the one hand, we can develop tests to see if you're positive or negative much quicker than we were able to do before. And theoretically, we'll come up with a vaccine uh, for those of us who actually believe in things like science and vaccines much more quickly than we used to. The flip side of that is technology spreads information and misinformation about this, which leads to panic and fear. I don't think you would have seen a week like last week half a century ago because the relentless drumbeat of panic and fear and info and misinfo just 
didn't exist in that same way. And so we would not have had that immediate emotional response. You still may have ended up down 12%, but it would have been over a couple of quarters as we actually saw it work its way into earnings instead of work its way into the fear of earnings. Barry, what did you make of the Fed's action earlier this week, the 50 basis point cut? Was that panic to you? Was that them looking too much at the markets? Or do you think the underlying data supported it? You know, the the data suggests that we're going to have a demand side slowdown. That's all the all the different sectors uh, Lisa was talking about. That's there. Nothing at all is suggested suggesting if only rates were lower, I would go to Disneyland. If only rates were lower, I could go to the Facebook Developers Conference or the New York Auto Show or anywhere else, any of these other big events that are being canceled. So it seems that we have developed this unfortunate habit of responding to situations with a monetary solution when it really calls for a fiscal solution. And the old joke is, to the man whose only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. (laughs) We seem to have abandoned the traditional Keynesian response to diminish demand for goods and services. Hey, when the private sector slows down, the government should step in uh, with either tax cuts or, or spending or both to temporarily replace that demand, assuming you want to cushion the blow of the slowing economy okay. caused by this. Sure, and and we can talk about what they should do. Uh, what they are doing and what they're expected to do is another story. And currently looking at Fed funds futures, just uh, more aggressively pricing in lower rates sooner. Two full rate cuts currently being priced into Fed fund futures for the meeting on March 18th in uh, less than three weeks coming up after their five, 50 basis point emergency rate cut, the first that they've done intermeeting since 2008 and since the crisis then. It raises a question, what does it do? Does it support equity valuations anymore, especially if the response is to something that we cannot evaluate right now on its face. We don't know how much it's going to bring down earnings. We don't know the relative valuation case at this point. Is, is this a time when we see that relationship, lower rates pushing up this sort of risk to, you know, this search for uh, for yields, this, this flight to risk? Is that connection broken? I'm not sure if it's broken. What, what seems to be going on, or, or, and this is... I have access to the same information that you do. I'm not speaking to Fed insiders. I don't know what they're talking about. I do recall them saying a long time ago, I think it was January, that they're concerned about negative interest rates. We heard that throughout 2019. Well, if you want negative interest rates in the United States, hey, keep cutting uh, federal funds rates. If you drive that low enough, eventually your worst nightmare will be here, which is negative interest rates. So I don't understand, are they responding to presidential pressure? Does the Fed have the same sort of unhealthy obsession with how high the stock market is that the president does? Uh, It's hard to judge from the outside. It looked like panic to me, and it also looked like the wrong um, prescription. You know, an aspirin isn't going to cure... Um, a common cold. And and this sort of viral infection is going to have an ongoing impact on demand that we have no idea how big it's going to be. 
cutting rates, talk about pushing on a string. How are cutting rates going to have a positive impact on this? It's it's really, well, actually, really surprising. I, I, you know, I was speaking with Jim Bianco earlier this morning. Oh, of love his research. work. Oh, boy. And, well, and one thing he said is that there is actually a, a fundamental plumbing issue that as people On the get, repo side? Or, on the repo side. Yeah. And that, I mean, that that's well known for how long? Over a year now? But that basically, uh, that, that people have been pulling their cash out of markets, that basically cutting rates will help ameliorate some of the plumbing issues. Uh, if you have a problem with the repo market because of a lack of liquidity, as we learned in the aftermath of 0809, the solution is to flood that market with additional liquidity. I don't think rates make all that much of a difference. I think they have an ability, the Fed has an ability, to take a market that is... I don't want to say frozen, but creaky. Remember, the 87 crash was caused by plumbing issues uh, within the market structure. I don't mean literally. Um, this is really a much insurance. more narrow little niche, uh, hopefully less systemic than what we saw in 87. But the Fed is aware of it. We know how to fix it. We just did this a decade ago. None of it has to do with rates that by any historical measure are incredibly low and very accommodative. So I don't understand uh, the Fed and their hammer. Everything apparently is a nail. Barry Ridholtz, thanks so much for joining us. As always, Barry's a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. He's also host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. When we talk about the disruptions to business in the wake of the coronavirus outbreak, we really have to focus on the airline industry, in particular the fact that there is a new estimate that more than $100 billion of revenue will be taken off the uh, top line of airlines given the coronavirus outbreak. And for more details, Brendan Case joins us now, industrial aerospace and chemicals team leader for Bloomberg. Brendan, how are airlines responding to this? So far, what they're doing is moving very quickly to cut costs. Um, United and JetBlue have announced that they're going to trim flights in the short term. Um, And I think we'll probably see a lot more of that. Uh, JetBlue was, in fact, very explicit about the need to preserve cash, which is certainly not a phrase that you would have expected the airline industry to be using just a couple months ago. Um, This is an industry that has been consistently making a lot of money after all of the consolidation that it, it went through over the last uh, decade. Uh, and now all of a sudden it's facing, uh, you know, a very, very big crisis. So, Brendan, it's interesting here. How much can and how quickly can these airlines cut their costs to offset uh, slowing demand on from uh, consumers? Well, they can certainly uh, do things like uh, pair their flight schedules. They can they can stop flying some planes. Um, and, and, and they'll have a bit of a cost break on, on jet fuel, which, which also because of coronavirus has been uh, going down quite a lot in price. Um, but what they can't do is respond to a situation where, um, where people just aren't flying. And we don't have a whole lot of, of, of great data about, about that yet. Um, but, you know, this is an industry that has said that it's ready for something like a recession, which would you know, entail uh, certainly a, a, a consistent sluggishness in demand. But I think what people are, are wondering about now is just how sharp the drop in uh, bookings will be over the next, the next few weeks and few months. Is anyone talking about actual insolvencies? 
it, it, that seems like a little far-fetched, in, in, especially in the U.S. Certainly in Europe, you're already seeing it with, with Flybe going into administration uh, today in Great Britain. There's also certainly other carriers uh, such as Norwegian and Alitalia that have been financially uh, weak in recent months. In the U.S., though, um, you've got the you've got an industry that is dominated by four or five really big carriers, um, and at this point, it seems like, barring you know a situation that drags on and on, um, you've got companies that that, in theory, at least, should have. The sort of the wherewithal to 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 weather the crisis, but again, it depends on it depends on how it shapes up. So, Brendan, we've been seeing headlines really over the last week or so about uh, corporations uh, severely uh, curtailing business travel. Have the airlines also seen material cancellations just from consumers, vacation goers, that type of thing? Uh, that's one of the questions that we're very keen to learn more about. Um, certainly, their comments about a sharp drop in demand over the last 24 hours would indicate that that's the case. Um, we don't have a whole lot of insight about that, though. Certainly, you know, we're in we're in the spring break timetable, and the airlines are already uh, already getting ready uh, for the summer the summer travel season. Um, but we don't have a whole bunch of data on that so far. The way we do have data on the, the business cutbacks that you mentioned, which which last night, by the way, um, you know, Boeing joined those ranks. Uh, Boeing said it would it would curtail uh, a lot of non-essential travel and and rely more on on video meetings. Um, and so there you have, you know, one of the airline industry's biggest suppliers saying there's going to be less travel for our guys, too. Brennan, we've seen the share price of some of these airlines absolutely tumble. How much more does it have to go when you speak to analysts? Um, you know, there was a note out this morning uh, from Bernstein that was saying that it seems like the shares have maybe sold off a little bit too much if you if you posit that this will be a relatively temporary disruption. Um, the, the, the big question, though, is, you know, if you have a situation, let's say, three or six months from now where people are staying home, schools are closed, nobody's flying – uh, it's really anybody's guess how bad it could get. Brendan, is there any indication from the companies that they're considering layoffs? Um, well, they haven't used that word yet, but United did uh, freeze hiring. It also halted any pay increases for management uh, employees until July. And so certainly you're starting to see some indications that things could head in that direction if it gets bad enough. Hey, Brendan, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Brendan Casey's Industrial Aerospace and Chemicals Team Leader for Bloomberg News joining us on the phone. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.